There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Notable. Hello again to Notable, Hello. the podcast. I'm Stuart McConey. I'm Elizabeth Holker. And by now, you should know if you've been with us since the beginning that Notable is a podcast where we talk through fascinating, unusual, provocative, earth-shattering <laughs> stories from the world of music, all kinds of music. We do, yeah. The whole last 400 years. At least. Yeah, at least. <laughs> hey, should we say hello on what will be the last of this first season? Yeah. I'm going to use the American term season because I quite like it. This is the season finale. Okay. And we'll be back very soon, by the way, so don't cry. But can we say hello to Turbo Ugend people all over the world? Yeah. Particularly the Turbo Ugend Wigan branch who got in touch with us after, they our, did. after our show about Turbo Ugend. Yeah. The global cult. Here we go. It's Liam Lovett Neal. He's the president of TJ Wigan. And yeah. the guy that Stuart saw, that's you, Stuart, but the guy that you saw is the vice president. And he said, um, really cool to hear us getting mentioned. And he thought we summed them up perfectly, which we're really pleased about. I was really delighted yeah. by that, that we did them justice. He said we summed them up perfectly. And in case you've not listened to that episode yet, well, you should. But, yeah, I saw a young man in the street with a Turbo Ugen jacket on, and that's what sparked the whole thing. Anyway, hello to Turbo Ugen Wigan. He went to St John Fisher Catholic High School. Is that where you I went? know it very well. Yeah. I know it very well. Okay, so... Several people known to me went to that, <laughs> went to that high school. Yeah. Let's ask no more. Uh, well, I don't know if we'll have the same effect today. I don't know whether the Bob Dylan fan club or anyone who was at the Rite of Spring in 1913, we'll get in touch. I somehow doubt that. But we're going to talk today about two riots. I predict a riot, two musical riots, yep. aren't we? Yeah, Bob Dylan going electric, the hullabaloo that it caused. Yeah, absolute hullabaloo at the Newport Folk Festival. Yep. But I'm going to kick things off by bringing to the party, as it were, the Rite of Spring, the performance thereof, the first performance thereof, of Igor Stravinsky and Diaghilev and Nijinsky's Rite of Spring in 1913 in Paris that caused probably the most sensational opening night in the history of classical music. So, in fact, let's put it another way. I saw one vlogger, if you will, video YouTuber, saying, hey, you know what it's like when you sometimes you go to the ballet and you just want to punch someone in the face? <laughs> because this isn't your usual ballet activity, is it? There was a riot. Yeah. Punches were thrown... Opinions differ and reports differ about exactly what a riot, what kind of riot it was. But there definitely was a riot. 40 people ejected from the theatre by the police. Fisticuffs, shouting. Some people feel it's been exaggerated throughout time, don't they? And, you know, any publicity is good publicity. I suppose in the manner of all pub fights down the years. Absolutely. You know what I mean? People say, oh, yeah, it was terrible. They were throwing chairs through the windows and... So maybe, you know, maybe it was handbags, to use a classical music term, <laughs> but it's certainly an interesting story. Igor Stravinsky, young Igor Stravinsky. 
He's a young lad. His dad is a singer back in Russia, back in the day, a very successful singer. So Igor is brought up both in a very well-to-do household and a musical household, so much so that his dad can afford for him to have none other than Rimsky-Korsakov as his teacher. Yeah. So he switches from being a law student to being a music student with Rimsky-Korsakov as his teacher, and he displays a prodigious early talent at this, doesn't he? And soon becomes one of the most notable new talents in music. We're talking about the beginning of the 20th century, where he has a chum called Diaghilev. Diaghilev's talents lie not so much in the playing of music, but in the entrepreneurial field. He is an impresario. And one of the things he does, he sets up a company called Ballet Russe in Paris, where there is a real appetite at at this time, the beginning of of the 20th century, I beg your pardon, there's a real appetite for all things Russian, and in particular music. Yeah. It's seen as exotic and sensual and strange and a little bit savage and a little bit sexy and alluring. So they, they like their Russian music. So for Diaghilev, Stravinsky composes two ballets, Petrushka and The Firebird, both of which are big hits, both of which take Paris, Parisian musical society, by storm. So Diaghilev says, let's, well, we'll do another one. And for this one, they turn to Russian pagan folklore, don't they? They do. And this is what I find quite funny about it, because these people, they looked at the programme and the subject matter isn't for the faint-hearted, is it? And I quite like how classical music audiences throughout the ages... There's some really murky subjects that are dealt with mm. in classical music, but they don't put the audiences off at all. Because this is, this is a, it's a pagan ritual, isn't it? And basically a mm-hmm. sacrificial virgin dances herself to death. That old chestnut, the old <laughs> sacrificial virgin dances herself to death. It is about spring coming to barbarous... Tuesday night. Yes, spring coming to barbarous, barbaric, pre-Christian Russia and the lifeblood flowing through the the spring, through nature, and all these things, and how the priests and the village elders and the young maidens all celebrate this, and particularly one young maiden dances herself to death. That's the story they decided to turn into uh, a, a ballet, a ballet score. So Stravinsky goes off to Switzerland, to this tiny Spartan room in Switzerland. I think I have the dimensions here. So he goes to this eight-by-eight-foot, chalet basically in Switzerland over the winter, the preceding winter and he writes a version of the Rite of Spring for two pianos and he plays this to Diaghilev and the conductor and various other people played in the forehands version with none other than Claude Debussy Mm -hmm. it helps if you can get Claude Debussy to help you I guess doing the piano playing apparently it was shocking in its piano version state the conductor who was going to go on and conduct it, Monteur, said are you serious? Yeah. We're going to put this ballet on, this music. And they said, like, yeah. And apparently, Diaghilev himself said, as he starts to play it with that dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun that begins the ballet proper, Diaghilev said to Stravinsky, does, does it go on like this much longer? And Stravinsky said, oh, yes, to the very end, my dear. <laughs> so they knew, people think Diaghilev knew that it was going to be a bit of a sensation, Pre, the pre-publicity was good. And he kind of, I think, talked this up a bit because he was a showman and yeah. he was an impresario. He knew what he was doing. They knew what they were doing, didn't they? And, and I think they and knew what they were doing. They were ahead of their time, but at the same time, it was enough to create a stir that would 
interest people rather than than it was lost forever. You know, the timing of it was very specific, I think. Yes. The piano Um, version for Two Hands, sadly, is lost forever. We just know that him and Debussy played it. We don't know what happened to that. But yes, you're right. The timing's important. The pre-publicity was important. And they've got everything's going. It's a perfect storm, really, because they've got this brand new theatre, the Theatre de Champs-Élysées, what they're going to put it on at. The Ballet Russe are a hot ticket. And apparently the audience on that opening night are sort of split in all kinds of ways. Some people think there might have been an element of class struggle in the reception, in that there was high Paris society and the kind of younger, more radical hipsters in the audience, like Debussy and Ravel, who were there representing the artistic community. And you sort of more, you know what I mean, the kind of people we might expect, the sort of aristocratic or bourgeoisie who might go to the Paris theatre because it was the dumb thing to do, but weren't necessarily the most broad-minded people musically. Anyway, they all pile in. And it begins, famously, the overture with this high strangulated melody in the bassoon, doesn't it? In the, playing yeah. on a bassoon, which had never really played in that higher register It's an before. old folk song. It's kind of based on an old folk song, isn't it? It is. And um, in the audience that night, Sanson turned, the composer Sanson turns to his neighbour when he hears this and says, what is that instrument? And his neighbour says, it's a bassoon. And he says... If that's a bassoon, I'm a baboon. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Because he was clearly an extremely funny guy. Pretty sharp. So. Pretty sharp for the old quips, but like less so about his, what knowledge of music, what was going to happen. Anyway, soon after that, as soon as it begins proper, dun, 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 the, Stravinsky himself said later, you, it, it mean, immediately the shock, when the curtain goes up and you see the set, yeah. And the costume. He said a group of knock-kneed and long-braided Lolitas, didn't he? That's a, that's a great <laughs> phrase. I, I love that. I knock-kneed and long-braided Lolitas, Jumping he said. Jumping up the and down like, as the storm broke. got to remember that, I'm not saying this in a sort of sleazy way, but ballet, usually, ballerinas, it's very elegant, willowy people with very little on, isn't it? So it's all kind of sensual and beautiful and elegant. The curtain goes up here with these people in tapestries almost and furs completely covered up with their arms stuck up and not need doing this weird dancing to this dun, 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 dun. and almost from the word go it causes a, there's a fuss going on in the auditorium some people start to shout some people start to laugh and jeer and throw things while down in the pit where the kind of hipsters are people are cheering reveling Debussy are high-fiving dancing <laughs> maybe doing some impressionistic dancing yeah and it gets quite out of hand doesn't it in the Nijinsky the choreographer later to give his name to a successful racehorse and to Colin Bell the Manchester City footballer um, Nijinsky has to stand on a chair shouting the beats out to the dancers because you can't hear them the dancers can't hear the music over the clamour of the crowd this competing clamour of people going this is rubbish get off you rubbish and people going this is cool this is the best thing ever or words to that effect. Stravinsky left the auditorium, didn't he, and went and stood in the wings. He did. He scarpered. It's the getaway, yeah. The police were called. 40 people were ejected. They got through it, and apparently there was a kind of stand innovation at the end, or there was a mixed uh, ovation of stuff. And it, well, was remarkable. It was a remarkable thing. You don't expect that to happen when you go to the ballet, or do you? Because there's this idea that you said, Elizabeth... There's this idea that Diaghilev and Stravinsky both kind of knew. They put it around. This is going to be savage. This is going to be wild. You're going to be shocked. 
they kind of stoke up a bit of ferment about it. They probably invited some people to stir it up a, a bit as well. Is that true? I didn't know well, that. Well, perhaps, I don't know. I'm just thinking Maybe that's what might... I would have done. I would have invited Sinead, my friend Sinead. Your friend Sinead? Yeah, she would have. Yes. She would have stirred it up a bit. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's really interesting, I think, in a, well, one of the interesting things is not long afterwards, they pr- produced just a purely musical version, minus a ballet, an orchestral score, that is universally regarded as a masterpiece. So quite quickly, people say, this is incredible. This is changing the face of 20th century music because for the first time, rhythm is coming to the fore. There's dissonance in there. It's complicated, but it's incredibly rhythmic compared to what had gone before. But I think what's interesting is it's a bit like, it's a bit like, say, the Sex Pistols in a way, that if you now listen to, in fact, at the time, but particularly now, if you listen to Anarchy in the UK or God Save the Queen, you think... This is a rock record. Yeah, isn't it? sounds like a Do you lot know of what rock I mean? and roll. It's absolutely. just quite a loud rock record. Yeah, yeah. It, the sensation about it was sort sort of contextual, and we've got used to the sound. And in a way, we've got used to the sound of the Rite of Spring. Anybody who goes to the cinema now, watches a horror movie, is used to pumping, dynamic, atonal, savage music. Yeah. So you hear it now, and you you think, yeah, this is pretty. Also, this is pretty groovy. Yeah. Also, I mean, Stravinsky did say. He said something like, this came completely... It was it was channeled only through my EO or myself, didn't he? He said, you know, like, right. this was a completely new ha- harmonic language. And in actual facts, well, we mentioned there's quite the folk song that the bassoon um, opens yeah. with. I think there were 10 or more folk tunes that people have identified that are in the piece. And you mentioned Rimsky-Korsakoff as well. There's a lot of textures and harmonies that he used in his music that's yeah. uh, present in this, and Glinker as well, shades of his music, and Tchaikovsky. So he was very much building on what had come before he in was. Russian music. We should say Russian music was very fashionable in Paris at the time. Borodin, Mussorgsky, Rimsky, Koskov, all the guys you've mentioned. And so the, 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 the cause celebre of it really, as I say, it's a perfect storm of things going on, but there's no doubt that it is a turning point in Western music, that I don't think music quite this angry and savage and rhythmically propulsive had ever been heard before. But uh, anyway, if you've not heard The Riot of Spring, Check stick it on, it's a riot. Yeah. It's literally a riot. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yes. Producer Jeff has suggested to us, and I think he's right, mm. that isn't it in some ways brilliant? I mean, that that could happen, that there was a cultural milieu where the the opening night of a piece of classical music would have been that much of a sensation everyone wanted to be there you wanted to be there it was yeah. a hot ticket it was a big news story i mean as the multiplicity of media and platforms and stuff meant that excitement's gone yeah. an opening night can't be that exciting anymore yeah i'm trying to think have you ever been in a crowd that's been rioting about what's going on on stage um i have only point. once and it's a terrible example yeah is the, the only time was when I saw Daphne and Celeste at the Leeds Festival, <laughs> but it is famous. They got yeah. bottled off, and it and it was um, it was quite unbelievable to watch because they came out full, you know, bounding with energy, and everyone just yeah. literally bottled them off the stage. And that's the only time. I s- and I guess the probably the the organisers did put them on to shock people and to have a little bit, you know, to yeah create a bit of a story the, the Reading Festival in the late eighties, early nineties was notoriously kind of violent and horrible. And I saw Meatloaf get bombarded with bottles of wee by Hell's Angels. Uh, 
or, 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 or my Hells Angels and kind of but I don't think that was any great artistic objection to no. meatloaf I think it was just the dumb thing like like strawberries and cream at Wimbledon you threw bottles of urine yeah. at Reading That's, it was the same um, it was the same for Daphne and Celeste poor Daphne and Celeste yeah, yeah. I don't know if anybody threw bottles of urine at Diaghilev and <laughs> Stravinsky I hope not some errant I don't know, Stone Roses fans in there. Um, wow. But also it makes you realise how exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of classical music, there's, I can only think of one other example. M- Michael Tilson Thomas played Steve Reich's four organs at Carnegie Hall in 73. And that caused... Wow. They say that was a riot. He threw it in. Maybe that's a future notable. Yeah, Maybe probably. that is a future notable. The other thing before we move off and move on to little Bobby Dylan is... How exciting, this is a personal thing of mine, how exciting was the early 20th century artistically, you know, Picasso, this kind of thing with music, in that so many things were going on. I mean, the First World War is just around the corner and that is that brings in a whole new series of stuff. But the, the sense of excitement of what was what was happening in literature, you know, modernism. So you've got Joyce and people like that in literature, you've got Picasso in the arts, you've got Stravinsky in music. Just this idea that a new world was being made is really exciting. It really yeah. is. Yes. Bob Dylan has only had one this billboard number one. Did you know that? It's astounding, isn't it? It's unbelievable. Under his own name, it's Murder Most Foul, the 17-minute track from his last album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, and that is his first billboard number one. A 17-minute single back in the day would never have got to number one, obviously because of radio and because of sales, but obviously now that streaming is involved in that, your clicks count, and yeah. Bob gets his first number one under his own name. He's been number one as part of We Are The World and things like that. But Bob Dylan, as an artist, has only had one number one single, and this Incredible. is it. Incredible. I know. Amazing. That's our notable exception. Every every show, we have a one-off. Yep. We do something that's unique. And that leads us on to the second riot. Yeah. And you're going to tell me about Bobby it Dylan is. at Newport. Going, yes. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So, so this all really starts at the Newport Festival in 1965, if not even the year before, in 1964. So, it's in 1964, Dylan, he's played really successfully in 1963, then he comes back in 1964. He's introduced on stage by Ronnie Gilbert of the Weavers, who says, here he is, take him, you know him, he's yours. Then, decades later, Dylan reflects on this in his autobiography, Chronicles. And he says that he failed to sense the ominous forebodings in that introduction. Because basically what Ronnie Gilbert was saying was that the crowd owned him. And that is very much how they felt at the time. You know, he was 
this spokesperson of a generation who were dismayed by all sorts of things like the rise of capitalism, international capitalism, aggressive foreign policy, these expensive and morally dubious wars abroad. And they saw Bob Dylan as the antidote to this. And I think a lot of the authenticity in his voice and the thing that they related to was in his faithful as they understood it, interpretations of this folk, you know, back catalogue. Yes, because you've got to remember, he's had several. He's had a couple of big hit albums, hasn't he? He's had, he's had Freewheeling and Times They Were yep. Changing, very much in that protest singer Times tradition. Times They Were Changing. By 65, yep. you've had a Absolutely. year or two of Beatlemania, and I guess some kids have decided, that's not for me. I want pure Pete Seeger, yep. Woody Guthrie-style political folk, and this dude, Dylan... He's one yep. of us. And then what he effectively is doing when he makes bringing it all back home just before this festival is he's sort of, sort of going over to the dark side, isn't he? Yeah, so he's introducing... I mean, he just wanted to change his sound. He wasn't even abandoning the folk no. community or, or, you know, the folk style. He was just in, incorporating electronic instruments into it. And, you know, this, like you say, they just thought that rock and roll was a mm. bit crass and puerile and commercial and that it sold out become very much part of the machine that they were, you know, opposed to. He did later say, again, reflecting on those comments about being owned by the folk move- movement, he said, uh, take him as yours, uh, Ronnie Gilbert's comments, he was like, what a crazy thing to say, screw that, as far as I knew, I didn't belong to mm. anybody then or now. In Also, in No Direction Home, he just says, I thought I'd get more power with a small group backing me. It was electric. That doesn't necessarily mean it's modernised just because it's electric. Yeah. Country music was electric as well. So he didn't really, he just saw it as like a slight kind of development and progression. He wasn't, you know, completely changing direction. So he comes back. 1965 in March like you say we'd had bringing it all back home highway 61 revisited is in the works it comes out in August just after July which is when he appears again at Newport he takes to the stage with his Fender Strat begins the set with Maggie's Farm from highway 61 immediately hostility booze and catcalls play folk music people shout get rid of the band it escalates throughout the next song, which is like a rolling stone, which I think yeah. is just inc- incredible to think now, isn't it? When you consider just how popular and well-loved that song is. By the third song, he's actually driven off stage. It takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry. Uh, he has to go off in the middle of that. And apparently backstage, there's a, a folky confrontation between two kings of the movement, Pete Seeger and Alan Lomax, mm. rush to the sound desk and they're trying to get um, the power cut. And Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul and Mary opposes them. So I don't know how he did it. I don't know if there was hurdy-gurdies There's all kinds of debate about this. Seeger says, there's the famous story that Seeger had an axe and threatened to cut the cables, didn't he? But then people said, no, this yeah. has all got mixed up in that the people who were on before Dylan or just before Dylan, is the, like the, the Texas prison singers, which just shows you what an event you put folk festival was there. So there's a bunch of jailbirds singing songs about, you know, penitentiary life. And they had axes that they, they thwacked into this tree trunk on stage to provide the rhythm. And, a, and uh, Joe Boyd, the great Joe Boyd of Witch Season Records and and up Purple Convention and all yeah, Nick yeah. Drake, he Nick says, Drake, what's happened yeah. is people have got all these things mixed up in their mind. The axes... Pete Seeger running around and it's got conflated into this incident that didn't really happen yeah yeah I mean there's a lot of that because some people say that that people weren't booing Dylan because of the 
electric instruments. It was just because they That's couldn't right. hear and the mix was wrong. And they didn't and play for long enough, yeah. There are all kinds of, yeah, there are all kinds of conflicting accounts. Um, and then he apparently returned to the stage with tears in his eyes, although that's, again, you know, possibly not true. Um, and he, he's with an acoustic guitar and he plays uh, Mr. Tambourine Man and yeah. it's all over now, Baby Blue. <sighs> I don't know. Was he confused and upset? Or he seems pretty, he seems pretty well, combative about it, doesn't he, all the time? Shaken. I mean, he does seem like he's just thinking, the hell with you. He must have known... What he, because when he comes on, the look, even the look, he's got a strap. He's in a leather jacket. Everything about, yeah. everything about eyeliner. Everything about it is yeah. designed to make the folkies upset who want the corduroy cap and all that. Everything about it, he's saying, "Look at me, I'm rock and roll yeah. now, isn't it?" Yeah, and he took he took these people yeah. on, didn't he? It just continued. So he continues to write in this way. A year later, uh, he's working with the Hawks, mm. who were later to become the band. May the 16th, 1966, he releases Blonde on Blonde. And the next day, mm -hmm. he comes to Manchester. It's literally the next day, May the 17th, um, for a concert at the Free Trade Hall. This was the 11th date, though, of on the European tour, leg yeah. on this world tour. And you see it on No Direction Home, don't you? It's All the brilliant. fans of Vox Pops after the shows, and they're like, he's, he's it's really just, changed. It's just playing pop music now. It's rubbish. He's, he's, what? Yeah. They're so brilliant, <laughs> that guy. There's these so, they're so earnest, these young fans, aren't they? yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sheffield and Liverpool, where by all accounts he'd had a much worse time in Liverpool a few weeks, a week or so before. There's a guy called Keith Butler who's filmed outside the free trade hall, students at Keel. Any pop group could produce better rubbish than that. It's a bloody disgrace. He's a traitor. And then in 1999, in a documentary for the BBC, he was asked what he thought of looking back and he said, I just think, you silly young bugger. <laughs> Which is brilliant. Well, yeah, because how can you not like, you know, like a Rolling Stone? I mean, it's just so Well, I can just see, so I mean, you can watch. see the guy, he's got a duffel coat, he's got these thick specs on. You can see that these yeah. are effectively like, I wouldn't say the the woke people of their day, but they are the earnest, young, politically committed people yeah. of their day. They have made an aesthetic decision. They don't want she loves you, yeah. And they think Dylan's gone to that, hasn't he, and betrayed the cause. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I can see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, we know a lot about this concert because, well, Robbie Robertson said that they were recording all these concerts. They were taping them so they could listen back to them, you know, to see what was all the fuss yeah. about or what actually happened. He said they would listen to them in their hotel rooms and think this really isn't as bad I as know. everyone. You know, what is this riot well, actually exactly, about? Yeah. Why is everyone kicking off? So they had lots of tapes. And of course, in 1998, uh, the one at the free trade hall was released live 1966 the royal albert hall concert is called isn't it because it was uh, misattributed right. for years right. and years and that's just how people know it now um so the first half of all these concerts that year he would start with a bit of an acoustic set he started with she belongs to me which people objected to because he was singing about himself right. and singing you know about personal struggles instead of the, instead movement, of the movement and yeah. you know uh visions of johanna we hear a bit of sort of extra raspiness on the lyrics, the ghost of electricity. Mm. Then we hear him, he's starting to play about with songs like Baby Blue. He keeps, the, you know, he's, he's going at his own pace by this point. He's playing at his own time. Tell Me Mama is on there. There's not a recorded version of that, a studio recorded version of that song, which is mm. a great song. By this point, the band have joined him and this is where it all starts to kind of kick off. He introduces I Don't Believe You, saying this is called I Don't Believe You. It used to go like that and now it goes like this. And we hear some sort of nervous laughter in the crowd. And the band really do 
tear yeah. into it. C.P. Lee. C.P. Lee did a great Manchester Lee, music Stuart? historian. C.P. Yeah. Lee. He was there, wasn't he? He yeah. was there. Yeah, yeah. And he's written about it in his book. He says, everyone was taken back by the volume. Like being in a jet when it takes off. Yeah. It must have seemed really loud then at the time. Because I guess was... John Boyd said that about Newport. He said it wasn't as much that people hated what he was playing. It was the sheer volume, which was so much louder yeah. than folk gigs, you know. And the, yeah, the distortion of it. By the time they get to Baby Let Me Follow You Down, Heckler's audible by this point. So they disrupt even Dylan's counting. Mm. They're chanting and clapping so he can barely continue with the concert. He has to break off um, his intro, actually, and, and start again. Protest clapping continues. Then he starts to kind of mumble nonsense just to quiet people down, I think, because they're hoping... Because that's the best way to quiet people down, start mumbling a lot of nonsense. (laughs) 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 Because they don't want to miss what he's saying. Oh, yes, yes, Um, I see what you mean, (laughs) So he's trying to... But yeah, no, it's it's a bizarre way to do it. And he says, if only you wouldn't clap so hard. But it's just rowdy by this point. It's kind of like a tussle between the band and the audience. Imagine doing this night after night after night. I think that's the unique thing about this story, isn't it? That it's not just a one-off and then... You know, and and also, I suppose, with the Stravinsky example and Steve Reich and yeah. the others that we've mentioned, it, it's not often that the person who is fronting the music has to go out and sort of present this every single mm. night, night after night after night in front of hundreds of people yeah. who are just protesting against it. And it, I don't know, yeah. he... He's he doesn't seem that disturbed by it, does he? On the film, I, I don't, don't think he is. I think he was one. I think he was thinking, "Bring it on! I want this to happen." Yeah, anyway. what well, he just wanted to break out of that niche, and he was fed up of being the spokesman for a generation, wasn't yeah. he? I mean, the, one of my favourite Dylan songs, "My Back Pages," addresses this directly, doesn't it? Where he sings, "Ah, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now," which is him rejecting the spokesman for a generation tag, saying, "I was so het up about things then that I just." And now, just let me play my rock and roll, as it were. Yeah, yeah. That's a gross oversimplification of what the song's about, but that's a bit to do with it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it's and, and the famous there's a famous heckle that several people take ownership of, have claimed ownership of, isn't there? So this is right up to the last song. Like a Rolling Stone is the last song. The crowd's last chance to make a statement, I suppose, and Dylan's. And then there's a quite a tense, quieter moment just before this track starts. And someone very famously shouts, Judas, which... I was thinking, is possibly, is that the most famous heckle of all time? Probably is. Possibly. And what is it that's so, what is, what is it that's, you know, that people still refer to it, people still talk about it? It's, which Dylan said himself years later, what a thing to say. He says, basically, that is about the worst thing you could, that's the most hated human being. Well, there's probably quite a few more as as hated, but take his point. He says, this is the man who betrayed Christ to get him crucified. He said, what a thing to say about me. It's literally biblical, isn't it? Yeah, and and he responds in this odd way, doesn't he? I don't believe you, he says. I don't believe you. You're a liar. You're lying. (laughs) You're a liar. You lie. Which is... Uh, it's kind of odd, but uh, yeah, but very Dylan. Yeah. yeah. There's another pause. Then he turns to the band. He orders them to play loud. Yeah. And they do. Play it flipping loud. Flipping loud, he, loud he does, yeah. And they do. And then it's all over. Dylan says, thank you. And then God Save the Queen comes on over the PA. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. The most famous heckle of all time. Most famous heckle, you might be right. Yeah. Do check out the bit in uh, No Direction Home, though, where they, oh, and D.A. Pennybaker's Don't Look Back, 
where they interview the kids on the streets afterwards because it is just brilliant, isn't it? It is, yeah. These kids are so earnest. earnest. Yeah. And it's it's almost charming and a bit irritating, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Why did they go, I wonder? Because they'd heard the music and they knew what was coming, didn't they? I, that's what I thought when I when I first saw the film. I was like, why did you all turn up to but do, do this? But do you know what? Here's a thing. Rock music and rock fans, this is something I've long thought... They put it about, they like to think of themselves as being the grooviest, most radical people on earth. Rock fans are the most, and pop fans, the most conservative people in the world. If you don't stick to what they want, I'm reminded of the fuss about the last Arctic Monkeys record, which I oh, thought that's true. Yeah, yeah. was a masterpiece, yeah. and I still think is a masterpiece. But because it wasn't all laddish songs about getting in taxis in Sheffield, it was pilloried by both high art critics and lad rockers who said, what's, what's he, why is he doing this? Who does he think he is? It's exactly the same. It's don't get ideas with your station. Yeah, yeah. Don't change. Don't change. We want you to be this. We, don't we like want change. you to be like this. Yeah, yeah. They don't like change. They're ultra conservative yeah. rock fans by and large. Concert tickets are they way more expensive now because you can't imagine Arctic Monkeys fans turning up to their shows and booing. Is, uh, for all their bleeding hearts of the, you know, these 60s folkies. Yeah, they, that's true. They didn't feel bad about, also, you know, heckling their favourite he artists. Com- as you, as you say, he was coming on. It's quite conciliatory, palliative. He is coming on at first with his acoustic guitar, doing the stuff yep. they like, yeah, albeit yeah. with some weird songs as well, before he brings the band on. And you do think now, God, lighten up. He, was just, he just got a band with him, that's all. Yeah, you know? yeah. But anyway, that's it. That's that's people. That's music people. Yeah. <laughs> it's bloody rubbish. Pop yeah. music. <laughs> Best gig of my life. Judas. <laughs> Worst gig of your life. Gig of life yeah. <laughs> if you'd have been the, yeah. this is a reference to the, this is a reference we should say that when Elizabeth used to do the music news on our afternoon show on Six Music, Elizabeth used to get vox pops of people, and there was always a lad from somewhere like Salford or Bolton or Rochdale <laughs> who would always go best gig of your life. So if you'd been and, there in nineteen sixty-six, it meant you'd got that lad saying worst gig of my life. <laughs> In the end, it just became a thing, didn't it? And then people would say it to me anyway. But this so. definitely wasn't that lad, John Cordwell's best gig of his life. <laughs> it was the worst gig of his life. Of course, you could say that no great musical artist, but in pop music or, well, jazz or maybe classical music... Hasn't changed direction. No truly great artist hasn't at some point had to... He or she had to confront that, that moment when they change and their audience don't like it so i guess it, when miles davis goes jazz fusion and people go you're selling out to rock and roll or when brian wilson wants to expand the vocabulary of the beach boy songs and mike love of his own band says you should leave your ego music for your solo albums mate or words to that effect when you made good vibrations I mean, I can remember, you know, when Bowie did Low, some people said, what's this about now? And and conversely, when he did Let's Dance, I remember Charles Murray in the NME saying, what's this now? It's got guitars and drum and dance beats all over it. So you, you can't win at some point. But as he said, people don't, they fear change. Yeah, but every true artist has to change, don't they? That's the thing. Certainly been my motto. Yeah. <laughs> so next season of, of Notable... <laughs> I mean, it's all going to be Kabuki theatre. Who theater. knows how we're going to come back? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be completely different. It's going to be Morris dancing in Kabuki theatre. So watch out, notable, notable <laughs> purists, and just better brace themselves. Well, if you were there, it's, free trade hall. Not likely, but if you were there, or if you knew someone who was there, 
get in touch with us. Yeah. A notable podcast on Twitter. Absolutely. And it goes without saying for this, the last of this first season, season, season one, <laughs> it goes without saying, do all those things that we have to ask you to do. Like, yeah, subscribe. Subscribe. Talk Follow. about us, buttonhole people in the butchers and in Aldi yeah. and say, are you not listening to this? Share with your What's the matter with friends. you? Find us on Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Best podcast of my life. <laughs> We're on Instagram, <laughs> Twitter. That's right. it. So that was season one. How was it for you, Elizabeth? Oh, I've had a, I have had a great time. Me it has been the best. It has been the best podcast season <laughs> of my life. Well, we're back very soon. Don't be disheartened. <laughs> Don't feel bereft. We are back very soon with season two of Notable. And to all the people who've supported oh, season one, thank we'll say you. Very big and we've thank had so many lovely comments, haven't we? Obviously, we couldn't yeah, possibly we read them all out. And nobody has yet emailed in to say Judy. They have not. No. <laughs> See you soon. See you soon. Notable, the podcast. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.